Greetings, undercover agent. This is your entry point into the clandestine world of Renegade Files. Your covert connection to paranormal events, unsolved mysteries, and underground cultural analysis. I'm your old friend Lex Gordon, broadcasting this encrypted episode from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. You have tuned in to Renegade Files episode 58, The Black Knight Satellite. At the height of the Cold War, before any nation had successfully launched a single satellite, the opposing forces of the Soviet Union and the U.S. discovered something orbiting the Earth. Both thought it was from the other country, but it was from neither. The object was tracked and studied by some serious people in the field of astronomy, and their findings were confiscated and have vanished. Mysterious signals were received, much speculation swirled, and respected publications reported on the unknown object circling the planet. And it's still there. What is this object? From where has it come? How long has it been there? And what is its purpose? Join me and together we will dive deep into these questions and more as we peer into the darkened skies and try to learn the real story behind the Black Knight Satellite. The Black Knight Satellite. This episode starts in the 50s, dips back to the 20s, and absolutely drives across some recent territory and right up into the present day. I've put all the research into an order that I feel presents this subject in the most logical way for you and me to go through it all, but on this episode, I haven't broken it into discrete sections. We're just going to explore what we know about the Black Knight satellite, and along the way, look into a few discoveries and topics that sometimes are directly related and other times give us either some background on the overall subject of off-world intelligence or relate to the discussion in a relevant way. As always, we'll keep it tight, we'll keep it real. So here we go. In 1953, the United States was engaged in the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Spying and counter-surveillance were perhaps at an all-time high, as were paranoia, fear, and general distrust between the world's two main superpowers. At this point, the Soviets had yet to launch the first satellite ever, Sputnik, and the U.S. had therefore not put a satellite into orbit yet either. Both were highly suspicious of the other, and tensions kept building, as did the development of nuclear weapons on both sides, and the world was on edge. In this climate of mistrust and tense negotiations, the U.S. and the USSR were building bigger and more powerful surveillance systems, mostly aimed at detecting nuclear strikes or attacks from either side. And since rocket-powered flight was a growing technology, Much of this surveillance was focused on things in the atmosphere and beyond. 
Amid this situation, the U.S. military detected a fairly large object orbiting the planet, something about the size of a semi-truck and trailer. As far as we know, the identification of the object was either led by or at least verified by astronomer Clyde Tombaugh. This was the guy who had discovered Pluto, so not exactly a lightweight. At about the same time, the Soviets also detected this object. They too thought it was something from the other side, the Americans, but no. And it isn't clear how the Soviets and the Americans each figured out it wasn't the other guy's satellite, but somehow they did. I guess spies. We don't know much more than that about what intelligence the Soviets did or didn't have on the satellite but we do know that the object was tracked on and off again by the U.S. military over the next several years. Then, in 1960, U.S. Air Force installations became increasingly concerned with the object, and by extension, so did the Department of Defense. It seemed to vanish from orbit on some nights, only to reappear in orbit a day or two later. This was extremely troubling to the Air Force and the DoD because if it was indeed an enemy technology, it was beyond anything we had at the time. In February of 1960, an article in the New York Times written by John Fenney stated, quote, an unidentified silent satellite has been discovered circling the Earth in a near polar orbit by United States tracking stations the Defense Department said today, the identity and origin of the mystery satellite, which has been dubbed the Dark Satellite, are not known, despite nearly two weeks of tracking. End quote. So the Air Force made arrangements with military contractor Grumman Aircraft to have them track and photograph the unknown satellite, which they did in August of 1960. But that information and those photographs have never been made public. It's unlikely they ever will be. Because of something we've touched on in at least one previous episode, and that's the fact that private military or other government contractors are not required to comply with freedom of information requests. Those are designated for information generated by public government departments. But then, nine months later, in May of 61, astronomers at the Harvard University location of the Smithsonian Institute Space Observatory saw the object. They reported it. And the Smithsonian asked astronomers and observers around the world to help them track the unknown object. This got the attention of Jacques Vallée, a French scientist and astronomer, and from his Paris location, he tracked and filmed the Black Knight satellite. Jacques Vallée is an OG UFO researcher and theorist, and he has worked with J. Allen Hynek and many others. He's a serious guy. He was surprised by the fact that the Black Knight satellite was in polar orbit. And this coincides with the observations made by the military back in 53 and 60. At the time of Vallée's viewing, there were no man-made satellites in polar orbit. And because of the Earth's rotation, 
A polar orbit satellite is the best orbital route for anyone wanting to observe the entire surface of the Earth. It's pretty simple if you think about it. As the satellite orbits from pole to pole, the Earth spins around and you can kind of catalog everything from one end to the other. Jacques Vallée also confirmed that the object was large, about 50 feet by 20 feet or something, which coincides exactly with the semi-truck size object as first observed by the US military in 1953. According to his calculations, Vallée estimated the object weighed about 15 tons, which was a far greater payload than any human-made rocket could lift into orbit at the time. Maybe even still. Vallée put all of his findings into a report with his team's photographs, video footage, mathematical data, and satellite tracking information and he submitted it to his supervisor at the French astronomy lab where he was working. All of that information was confiscated and destroyed. Vallée was furious, but the only explanation given to him was that the astronomy lab directors were embarrassed that they were unable to identify the object. To this day, Jacques Vallée is annoyed by the destruction of all that work. After that, the public interest in the Dark Knight satellite fell off for about a decade. And much of that can be attributed to everything from a general policy of non-disclosure from NASA and the military, especially when it comes to all things extraterrestrial intelligence, as well as the outright destruction of evidence as we saw with the Jacques Vallée data. But then... In 1973, a Scottish astronomer and author wrote an article for Spaceflight magazine in which he claimed to have decoded a radio message sent from the Black Knight satellite. To understand how he arrived at this conclusion, we have to take a time travel pod back about 20 years into the past to a time before the world's strategic military forces first noticed the Black Knight satellite circling the globe. In the 1920s, Norwegian engineer Jorgen Halls discovered a series of radio signals that seemed to be echoes from terrestrial radio transmissions. Radio frequency echoes had been known of for some time, and were, and still are, generally attributed to a phenomenon where the radio signals bounce around between the Earth's surface and the various layers of the atmosphere until they're received again by radios here on Earth. But the echoes that Halls discovered in 1927 were longer, much longer. This led them to be named Long Delayed Echoes, or LDEs. Enter Dr. Ronald Bracewell. Bracewell was a senior research officer at a radio physics laboratory in Australia where his team conducted experiments in very long wave radio propagation and radio astronomy. He eventually came to teach radio astronomy at the astronomy departments of both Berkeley and Stanford. Dr. Ronald Bracewell proposed that extraterrestrials may use interstellar probes, to search for intelligent life in the cosmos, much like we have. 
an Imperial probe droid. There's a good bet the Empire knows we're here. Bracewell suggested that such probes might try to attract our attention by sending back to us our own radio signals, and he thought that these unexplained, long-delayed echoes discovered by Halls could be evidence of just such a situation. This concept was expanded upon by the Scottish astronomer and writer named Duncan Lunan, and I've also heard it said Lunan. This was the guy who wrote that 1973 article for Spaceflight Magazine, the one where he said he had decoded a radio signal sent from the Black Knight satellite. Duncan Lunnan holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Glasgow, a master's with honors in English and philosophy, and a postgraduate diploma in education. He was the manager of the Glasgow Parks Department's astronomy project, through which he built the Site Hill Stone Circle, which is the first astronomically aligned megalith built in Britain in 3,000 years. Maybe in way longer than 3,000 years, but that's another episode. So it's like a modern Stonehenge, right? Duncan Lunnan decoded the long-delayed echoes recorded by Jorgen Halls, and he claimed to have discovered, included in the timing of the transmissions, not just information about the signal's origins, but about what they were saying. Using the long-delayed echoes captured by Halls in the 20s, Lunnan plotted the data from the time delay of the echoes with the position of each echo in the sequence and after some work, he determined, or hypothesized, that these points indicated a map of the stars in the constellation Boötes. Lunnan then compared this star map to one he created in the same manner, but using LDE data from French astronomers collected in 1929, and the results were identical. Now, we're not going to go into all the calculations of things like axial precession, and the mathematical actual distances of stars compared to their apparent positions in the sky when viewed from Earth, but the short version of what Lunnan found was this. The map he had generated from the signals he had attributed to the Dark Knight satellite showed a variation in the position of one of those stars. That's because, as time passes, the Earth sort of wobbles on its axis, and this causes shifts in the apparent positions of stars relative to each other. So he calculated this variation to a time when the stars in his map of the constellation Boötes would align, and what he found was that this would have been a map of the constellation Boötes as viewed from Earth 13,000 years ago. Collectively, this is the math and theory which gives us what some people say is the age of the Dark Knight satellite, 13,000 years old. So that's where that number comes from. This is interesting because we know there are many ancient texts and things such as Egyptian hieroglyphics, Incan legends, Sumerian accounts, and native First Peoples folklore all describing a dark object orbiting the planet. Some folklorists have interpreted this idea of a dark object to mean a negative or destructive element of nature, 
but others read this as a more literal description, a black satellite. Some legends tell us that this object contains cellular samples of life from other planets, sent here as a message to let us know we are not alone. A message from our star people brothers. Other legends tell us that the DNA on the Dark Knight satellite could have been put there by a highly advanced race of ancient Earthlings, a technologically superior race that faced destruction, placed the DNA in a sort of dark arc, and positioned it in a polar orbit to stand the test of time, avoid the cataclysms on Earth, and await the next epoch of life to advance to such a technological point where we could discover the object and the information it contains. So according to the work done by Duncan Lunnan, the Black Knight satellite could have been orbiting the Earth for 13,000 years. Lunnan's work was published in the New York Times and Time Magazine in the 70s, but it sort of fell into that vague area of being consumed and cited by UFO researchers, but essentially forgotten by the normies. The reality is that we have never conclusively proven that any long-delay echo radio signals have originated from the Dark Knight satellite, and Lunnan himself admits that he employed a fair amount of speculation in the process of creating his star maps. But then, in 1998, NASA launched Space Shuttle Endeavour on December 4th for mission STS-88, sent mainly to add a component to the International Space Station. When NASA released photos of that mission, people immediately saw what 100 years of radar data had collectively identified. We finally had publicly available pictures of the Black Knight satellite. NASA immediately claimed that it was just space debris, a thermal blanket lost from some previously launched satellite or piece of NASA equipment. But the type of thermal cover which NASA claims is the Dark Knight satellite is only about five feet square. And the Dark Knight satellite is the size of a semi-truck and trailer. And it's orbiting in a polar orbit which is fully unnatural for something that just came loose and started floating around. Another NASA explanation was that the Dark Knight satellite is actually the Discoverer 5 capsule that had malfunctioned and gone off course. But even that was at least in part a lie because we now know that the military was covertly using the Discoverer 5 launch story as a smokescreen to cover up the Corona Project, which was a classified spy satellite program that remained top secret for years. And by the way, NASA, which is it? Is it the Discoverer 5 capsule, or is it a space blanket? Either way, neither of these official explanations can account for the full history of the Black Knight satellite which has shown up over and over again on radar and been photographed long before our own satellites and space missions could have left any debris in orbit, since the 50s that we know of, and by multiple space agencies in multiple countries. And accidentally putting some space trash into polar orbit 
very unlikely indeed. So this brings us to a section of the episode where we're going to look into a few other situations. Situations where non-human intelligences seem to have something to do with objects in orbit around the Earth, but that aren't, strictly speaking, always the Black Knight satellite. The reasons to go into these are, first of all, to add credence to the idea that the Black Knight could be a product of extraterrestrial intelligence, and secondly, because this stuff is just cool. It's interesting when we start to unravel the comments and explanations NASA gives us for anomalies we see flying around in Earth orbit. You may recall that I took a recent tour of NASA behind the scenes thanks to my friend who's an engineer for a NASA contractor, and one of the main things that the day impressed upon me was the fact that NASA is far from just one thing. And I've talked to my engineer buddy about this since then. We tend to speak and think of NASA in terms of a single administrative organization, and in a way, it absolutely is. But it's also a complex interconnection of technology firms, military branches and personnel, engineering contractors, scientists, educational organizations, and more. Yes, NASA has a public relations department, and most of the time when we get any kind of official word on this or that subject, it comes through and from that division. But NASA isn't just some office at the Cape where seven or eight guys who know everything about our space programs work, even though that's how it seems to us outside observers sometimes. But there are some things that slip through the cracks of the NASA oversight gatekeepers, and one of those was transmitted from a space shuttle mission that launched on March 13, 1989. The mission, Space Shuttle Discovery Mission STS-29, was to deploy a tracking and data relay satellite. At some point in the mission, which lasted just under five days, a member of the Discovery crew sent a radio transmission to Mission Control in Houston, Texas, That transmission was picked up and recorded by a ham radio operator. In the message, you can clearly hear the astronaut tell the operators in Houston that they, quote, still have the alien spacecraft under observance. That clip is amazing. And NASA has never really commented on it. Let's hear it for ourselves right now. Uh, Houston, we still have the alien spacecraft under observance. (laughs) Right? And a big thank you to Billy Carson and his documentary Black Knight Satellite, Beyond the Signal, for that audio clip. Check out his movie to see his thorough and compelling work on this subject. I'll put a link to his movie in the show notes. Okay, so as I said, that recording from a space shuttle astronaut to Mission Control in Houston isn't directly related to the Dark Knight topic, but I wanted to include it here, because something that astounding should have been front page news, and yet, the vast majority of people, even those into NASA and space exploration, know nothing about that. Don't you find that odd? 
And on the subject of things we find odd, let's turn our attention back to Epsilon Boötis, which is the double star system in the Boötis constellation. And there are a few things about Boötis that stand out, and that's B-O-O-T-E-S. And remember that Boötis is the star system that Duncan Lunnan said was the location identified by the messages he said came from the Dark Knight satellite. First of all, there's a long history of fascination with Boötis from astronomers and alchemists and people of science going back as far as we have records. That in itself is intriguing. But more than that, we have an unexplained anomaly within the constellation Boötis. Right smack in the middle of it, there's a huge void. A location within the Epsilon Boötis double star system that contains nothing. Now, containing nothing may sound common when we're talking about space. When we're talking about anything, actually, most of the universe, as we know, is, by far, empty space. But empty space is, by its very definition, easy to see through. So in this location, within the Epsilon Boötis double star system, we see a blank void. There is nothing there, and there should be. Even if that spot is pure empty space, we would see the stars and planets and galaxies behind it. But we don't. We don't even see stardust. This is a bit alarming. Almost more so than seeing a planet with life on it. Why? Because it seems that something is being actively hidden there. Cloaked in some way. And even mainstream theoretical physicist and professor and darling of the mainstream media Michio Kaku has gone on the record to say that he believes it's possible that this unexplained void in space in the Epsilon Boötis constellation could be an advanced civilization that has cloaked its location. Now here we enter into some seriously speculative territory. If there is an advanced civilization on a planet in the Epsilon Boötis constellation, which by the way is about 236 light years away, so far, then the question becomes why have they hidden themselves? Could they be hiding from some other extraterrestrial life in the universe? To protect themselves and their life-giving resources? If so, then we might start to wish we had heeded Stephen Hawking's advice to not broadcast our location and existence willy-nilly into outer space. But even if we had, he was a few hundred years too late with that advice because our radio and broadcast transmissions are already echoing through the cosmos and will continue to do so forever. Okay, maybe not forever, but you get the idea. It would be very hard for us to hide our existence at this point. And this brings us to a report called Communication with Extraterrestrial Intelligence, generated by and for the NSA. As far as I can tell, this was a document created to provide some extraterrestrial intelligence background theory to agents of the NSA. Exactly why, I have no idea, but I do have some theories of my own and we'll get to those after we go over this document. 
So I've read this six page report twice, so I can give you the basics of it. And you can also find a link to the PDF document at patreon.com slash renegade files in the dark Intel files for this episode, along with NASA photos of the satellite and all the other research for this episode. And the same thing for every published renegade files episode that's on our Patreon page link in the show notes and at the renegadefiles.com. Check it out today. And thanks for those of you who support the show there. This report was written by Lambros D. Calamejos and was initially presented as a lecture at the Cosmos Club in Washington. So first, let's look into who the author is. And this is from his short bio at the end of this document. Lambros Calamejos won world-renowned as a flute virtuoso before serving in the Army Cryptologic Unit in World War II. The author of many textbooks, monographs, studies, and articles, including the ones on cryptology in the World Book Encyclopedia, Collier's Encyclopedia, and the Encyclopedia Britannica. He has, for 20 years, taught NSA's senior course in cryptanalysis. Okay, so an expert on cryptanalysis. This is interesting because cryptanalysis is the process of analyzing information systems in order to understand the ways in which information within the systems are hidden. Cryptanalysis is used to breach cryptographic security systems and gain access to the contents of encrypted messages even if the cryptographic key is unknown. Scary. So to put it bluntly, this is like high-class formalized computer system hacking. How to figure out how information is hidden in an encrypted system and how to access that information even when you don't have the keys to do so and presumably don't have permission to do so. And this person taught this at the senior levels of the NSA for 20 years. So the first sentence in this internal NSA document reads, quote, We are not alone in the universe. Probably like you, my first reaction was, whoa, that sounds like some serious official government disclosure on UFOs and aliens to me, right? We are not alone in the universe? But not really when you read on and start to get a feel for the tone of this document. It's really strange. The next sentences read, quote, A few years ago, this notion seemed far-fetched. Today, the existence of extraterrestrial intelligence is taken for granted by most scientists. Even the staid National Academy of Sciences has gone on record that contact with other civilizations is no longer something beyond our dreams, but a natural event in the history of mankind that will perhaps occur in the lifetime of many of us. End quote. Okay, so what we immediately see here is an old big government agency trick, and that's as simple as giving you what you want to hear and then instantly walking it back by using it as conjecture and speculation with words like this notion seemed far-fetched and existence is taken for granted by most and will perhaps occur and all of that. The document goes on to give us some math that will be familiar to anyone who has ever dug into the research on probabilities of life in the cosmos. 
the old 100 million potential life-supporting stars in the Milky Way galaxy, and the stat that the Milky Way is one of about a billion others similar to it, which all sounds hopeful if you're looking for life in space. But then we get the downer of distance math. So the closest potential planet is something like 100 light years away. And the report says that means a message sent would need 200 light years to receive it from us and for us to receive the reply. And my first thought was, is that right? Do we send messages at the speed of light? I know radio waves don't travel that fast. A NASA article mentions them working on infrared lasers to send and receive data, but it isn't a sure thing yet as far as I know. Let's give the guy the benefit of the doubt though, and say he's right that the closest planet that might have life comes with a 200 year delay in the back and forth of a conversation. That's a long pause. Seven generations long. Then the paper goes on to a few ideas about what an advancing civilization would have to survive in order to grow to a technologically advanced state capable of interstellar communication, and I guess at some point, travel. And this is also interesting because it seems so myopic to me. So from the document, it is quite possible that others have satellite probes in space retransmitting to them anything that sounds non-random to the probe. But they have probably called us several thousand years ago and are waiting for an answer. Or worse yet, they have given up. Or, more probably, they have reached such impressive technological advances that they have destroyed themselves. In this connection, Professor Iosif Shaklovsky Russia's greatest radio astronomer has cited the profound crises which lie in wait for a developing civilization, any one of which may well prove fatal. 1. Self-destruction as a result of a thermonuclear catastrophe or some other discovery which may have unpredictable and uncontrollable consequences. Read CERN. Number 2. Genetic danger. Number three, overproduction of information. Number four, restricted capacity of the individual's brain, which can lead to excessive specialization with consequent dangers of degeneration. And number five, a crisis precipitated by the creation of artificial intelligent beings. So this seems like so much projection, right? The assumption that any civilization that progresses into technology would use the technology to kill themselves like we do is silly. Why would that necessarily be so? The one about an overproduction of information stands out, right? I mean, I agree that this could be an annoying thing. We see it right before us as we speak. but. How could the overproduction of information obliterate a civilization? It could obliterate culture. I mean, I'm sure there are ways. If anyone knows of a study or a deeper theory on that, send me a note in the comment of any Instagram post where our handle is at renegadefiles. Give us a follow on Instagram. Number four is valid. The restricted brain capacity leading to over-specialization, which eventually degrades adaptability. And this is on an evolutionary scale. 
We also see this unfolding in real time. I recently read a really long article called Complex Systems Won't Survive the Competence Crisis by Harold Robertson for Palladium, June 1st, 2023. That author dives deep into the idea that the complex systems of a technological future will and do require high levels of competence and that the growing legal consequences of discrimination or accusations of unfair work practices have led corporations who used to evaluate candidates based on merit to effectively outsource this process to the universities. So rather than hiring, trying, and evaluating new hires based on how good of a job they do, then getting rid of the ones who underperform, The companies just hope that the graduating candidates have already been vetted by the higher education process, grab who they think they need, then hope for the best over time. But the catch is that now merit has been systematically deleted from education at all levels in favor of fairness across a broad spectrum of attributes, and that the direct casualty of this over time is a reduction in competence. The rabbit hole there is deep, and there may be a full episode in the ideas within that article, but for now, the point that the Russian radio astronomer makes is well taken. A civilization has to have competent members who can design, operate, and succeed at a long list of creations and tasks in order to survive into deep technological territory, and failure to do so as the creator of that list tells us is possibly fatal. The document goes on to describe and illustrate a few of our historical attempts to both listen for signals from deep space and send messages of our own. These get into delays of 48,000 light years for those conversations. The document is pretty cool, because it's a lecture given by a professor who teaches agents at the NSA, and it's all about communicating with extraterrestrials. But, once again, it's really just all speculation and theories. And yes, those are good scientific starting points, but this article isn't the full disclosure that some people paint it as. Wrapping up our look at the document with my own ideas of what this might be, let's first read from the end of the last paragraph in the paper. It's speaking on what to do if we do receive contact from aliens, and it says, quote, As far as the cryptologist is concerned, he and generations of his descendants who might experience the supreme thrill of their lives when we hear from, quote, them, must keep a level head, not get excited, and be prepared to cope with problems the likes of which he has never seen, out of this world, so to speak. Okay, so after the somewhat lengthy and at times seriously heavy theoretical cryptography exercises that this article, I skipped over some of the most complicated sections for your own sanity, but that this article gives us, like I said, you can read through it in the dark intel files on the Patreon post, but that's the conclusion that we get. Hey, if we hear from aliens, keep a level head, don't get excited and be ready to deal with some unimaginable problems. And remember who both the author and audience of this lecture are, NSA spooks who specialize in breaking into secure encrypted systems, 
isn't it interesting that the person whom the NSA chose to deliver this information about extraterrestrials isn't an astronomer, isn't an astrophysicist, but is a cryptologist who teaches computer security hacking to NSA agents. And his conclusion for the computer system hacker is, if we're contacted by aliens, get ready to do some of the most unexpected and unimaginable problem solving you've ever encountered. And not just you, but generations of your descendants. One way to look at this might be as a precursor for an alien invasion false flag that will serve as job security for generations of NSA computer spies. Not saying that it's that 100%, but it does make you wonder, why has this document been allowed to circulate so widely? Maybe to start the conversations about the government knowing about aliens, and no one can deny that such a conversation is alive and well right now. So here we find ourselves at the conclusions for this episode. What do you think? Is the Black Knight satellite an extraterrestrial probe sent here 13,000 years ago to watch us? Or is it a space blanket that came off of some man-made satellite in the 80s? Well, as so often is the case, the NASA explanations bring up a fair few questions. These space blankets are insulated covers used to protect sensitive satellite equipment from harmful radiation in space. If this is one of those covers, what happened to the equipment it was originally put on to protect? They act like it's nothing. Oh yeah, just one of those old thermal insulation covers that came off of some old satellite or maybe the International Space Station. No big deal. And whatever the Dark Knight is, we've known it was as big as a semi-truck and trailer since the 50s. Jacques Vallée confirmed that a decade later in the 60s. A 50-foot object that weighs 15 tons isn't a 5-foot blanket. So as far as I'm concerned, the blanket idea is out. Not just that, this points to some disinformation from the NASA PR department. We know it wasn't the Discoverer 5 capsule either. That was all a smokescreen for some other project. I think there's something there, as far as the satellite, and either they have no clue what it is, or they're not telling us. As for the work done by Duncan Lunnan, I'm not so sure. He was never able to prove that the long-delay echoes he charted came from the Dark Knight satellite. He just thought they could have. And the map he drew by plotting the gaps and spaces of the echoes only looked 100% like the Epsilon Boötis constellation after he adjusted the Earth's axial wobble back by 13,000 years. So him saying that a civilization from Epsilon Boötis sent the Dark Knight probe here 13,000 years ago is a pretty big stretch. It's an interesting theory. And it's fun for a straight-up legion of weirdos like us to dive into, but I'm not sure he's deadly accurate about it all. The NSA document is a combination of inconclusive government double-talk and terrifying pre-programming that just screams alien invasion false flag prep school to me. Just my opinion. What struck me the most here was the whole thing about the void and the visible structures within the Epsilon Boötis constellation. That's freaky. Michio Kaku saying that could be an advanced civilization cloaking itself is serious stuff. 
It makes me think of a few articles I've read over the recent few months about projects that are sending human remains and DNA into space. Some to study how stem cells act in space and others to send people's remains to the moon. Totally true, by the way. Maybe this is a bad idea. Do we really want to send our genetic makeup and DNA structure out into space for any old alien civilization to find and contemplate? Haven't any of these scientists ever seen a CSI episode? DNA? That's how they always get you. In the end, I think that Black Knight satellite is a real object, probably as big as the reports tell us, and either NASA and the military knows what it is, or they don't. And either way, they aren't talking. Thank you sincerely for coming along to investigate the Black Knight satellite. Subscribe or follow Renegade Files wherever you listen to podcasts and share us with your friends by sending them a link to our website, therenegadefiles.com. Thank you to everyone who helps the show stay alive at patreon.com slash renegadefiles. Join us there and become an RFA agent to get bonus episodes, help me keep making these shows, and help me keep them ad-free. You can check it out for free for a whole week. So just click the link to Patreon in the show notes and I'll see you in there. You can also find that link on our website. And check out all the cool gear we have in our secure merchandise shop. Also a link in the show notes. Hats, t-shirts, a cool coffee mug, and a lot more. Grab some Renegade Files gear and represent. Until we launch another mission, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, conspiracy child.